This morning, before our sermon text, I'm going to read a poem from Matt Harris entitled, A Woman's Lost Coin. Some yet argue, Salome, that he is Elijah. Others say John the Baptist or Jeremiah. As for me, I say, he's Messiah. For he taught me how his parable is the purse and his words the silver pieces he pours out into the hands of all who hear. When one of my own ten pieces of silver fell through this crevice in my clutch, forfeited amid my maze of flotsam-like flooring of dust, rushes, and reeds, I sat my lamp upon its stand, fueled by the fruit we pressed from the olive groves we grew. Seizing my broom by its handle, I then bestrewed the surface like a winnower whose fork bestirs the grain atop a threshing floor. And when the grim grays of Caesar finally flickered beneath the light, my smile was there to greet a stare. On my journey to rejoice with you, I heard Jesus speak this parable to tax collectors, scribes, and Pharisees. This poem ends with our scripture reading for the morning. And if you're able, please stand for the reading of the word from Luke 15. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, doesn't leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Highland. <laughs> I'm so excited to get to speak to you this first week of July. Uh, for the last few weeks, Shane has been going through his parable series and has stayed mostly in Matthew, and today we're going to get to spend some time in Luke. Um, and so before we do that, if you'll bow your heads with me in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come together today in worship. God, I pray that um, as we are joined together, that you would pour through me the gift of preaching to these, your people that you would let our hearts be open to the movement of the Spirit, to the truth of your word. It's in your name we pray, amen. Good morning, my name is Aaliyah and I'm an intern here at Highland. Um, been working here for about a year and a half uh, and it's been an absolute joy and pleasure. But this morning I wanna start with a quick apology. As many of you know, if you're a stand-up comedy fan like I am, there's absolutely nothing worse than explaining a joke. Okay, and personally, I think that there's something in preaching a parable that's kind of similar. The parable is beautiful, it's like this jewel, and sometimes trying to preach it well is like smashing it with a hammer to get at what's inside. 
So I hope this morning, Highland, that as we walk through this parable together, that instead what we get to do is turn that jewel around and see something new. So now that I've apologized to Jesus and begged his forgiveness for stepping all over his perfectly wonderful story, let's step in. So we open on this scene, Jesus talking to the sinners, Jesus talking with the sinners. And we also see another group of people. They're a pretty regular group of people in Jesus' life and ministry, and that's the Pharisees. And Luke paints for us a pretty uncharitable characterization of them. He even says in the text, they're grumbling. Now, this is pretty Luke, because one thing he'll do is add in some detail for you. So the Pharisees aren't just talking, they're grumbling. But to find the question that they're really asking Jesus, we have to do something really annoying and kind of play devil's advocate here for a second. What is the question behind the Pharisees grumbling? The Pharisees are the guardians of the righteousness of the people of God. Their role is to maintain the integrity of God's witness in the world. Their role is to help the people of God remain pure, to give them systems, to explain scripture, and to maintain the identity of the people of God. And so, their concern is not just for sin, it's for, in this passage, it's to name these people as sinners. It's this movement from saying sin in our community is not okay to saying these people aren't okay. We all kind of get this at a, at a surface level at least. We understand germ theory, and this is kind of one of the easiest ways to get into the Pharisee's head. Um, Dr. Richard Beck, who actually preached the last part of this chapter a few weeks ago, um, he, he did something that I will never forget my freshman year of college. And he asked a group of college freshmen, would you drink lemonade out of a bedpan if it had never been used before? <laughs> and hearing that, you're kind of like, no. <laughs> and you would be on the same page as me about that one we have a psychological understanding that something feels wrong there. Something feels a little bit dirty about that. Another way of thinking about this is a black hole. And I'm sorry to any scientists in the room, I'm about to butcher an explanation of a black hole. But essentially what a black hole is, is matter so dense in the universe that it actually sucks in everything around it and it can't even let light escape. Getting close to a black hole, if you've ever seen the movie Interstellar, basically means you don't exist anymore. And so, for Pharisees at the time especially, there was an interpretive tradition that basically said the same thing about sin. If you are a sinful person, you cannot help but drag people into sin with you. Sinners were outcasts in the community because what happened when clean people got near unclean people was that the unclean people dragged them into sin. And so the question that they seem to be whispering about is, Jesus, do you really know God? Because if you knew God, you'd know dealing with sinners is a slippery slope. Don't you know, Jesus, that getting close to these people 
drags you in too. So what does Jesus do here, right? In typical Jesus fashion, he starts telling a story. Luke's gospel is full of these wonderful inversions. This is a highlight of this text, that what we expect God to do is very different than what he actually does. What we've always thought will happen ends up turning into something else. In this story, we turn a corner and reality is made beautiful. So as Jesus starts to tell each of these stories of the lost sheep and of the lost coin, something unfolds. It's Jesus's reframing of a sinner. Jesus says, sinners are no longer called sinners. This is not their identity. It's not that Jesus is not concerned with sin. You won't find anyone more concerned with sin. Of course, he's concerned with the holiness of the people of God. The problem is that what the Pharisees have done, what their responsibility is, protecting the righteousness of the people of God, has turned into something else. And Jesus says, righteous ones, remember, these sinners are not primarily sinners. They are people who are missing that need to be found. They are people who have left holes in your flock. Their absence causes grief. Recently, my husband and I uh, just moved into a house. I (laughs) crazily lived on campus for the last six years of my life because I worked in residence life for four years. And if any of you are familiar with the residence life system on ACU's campus, you'll know they hold everything together. (laughs) But also, (laughs) you'll know that I'm very happy that I no longer receive phone calls in the middle of the night from residents who tell me their toilets are exploding. It's probably the best part about it. But they also, when student workers, student employees, RAs, come to work for Residence Life, they're taught some things. They're taught how to plan an event. They're taught how to build relationships with residents. They're taught all these things, but they're also given something. At the beginning of your Residence Life job, you're given a very special key. This key is called a Z key, and it unlocks every single door in whatever building you work in. Now, I worked on the apartments on campus, and so the key that I received unlocked every single apartment, all 250 apartments on our property. Now, you may wonder to yourself, why would any adult in their right mind give six 20-year-olds keys that are individually worth $8,000? Because that's what it cost to re-key one if you lost it. But they did. They gave each of us keys that cost that much and threatened us on pain of death. If you lose this, watch out. So you can imagine the drop in my stomach when I get a phone call one morning from my coworker who says, Leah, I've lost my Z key. I have no idea where it is. So I do that annoying thing that people tend to do, and I run through the questions. Did you look here? Did you look here? Did you check your keychain? Did you check your backpack? She's like, yes, I'm not an idiot. And I'm like, okay, let me, let me come help you look. So I go with her to her apartment. We look through her car. I, we look through her friend's car. We look everywhere we can think. And finally, 
I'm like, we have to tell somebody. And she's like, but I don't have $8,000. These keys had value that were inherent to their nature. It wasn't enough to say, oh, don't worry (laughs) that one of these keys is missing. We have six more. We've got plenty. It wasn't even that this missing key mattered more than all the other ones. No, any of the lost keys would have meant the same panic. No, a missing key was something that created a panic because of the hole that it left. Its absence reminded us of its value. You don't know what you got till it's gone. No longer could this key do what it was created to do and be what it was created to be. And in our lives, we kind of get this, right? Each one of us is not more important than the other ones. But the lost ones create a vacuum in our lives, whether we know it or not. If you've ever lost a friend, if if you've ever severed a relationship, if you've ever left a place, you know what this is like. That person you're no longer friends with, the community you had when you were over here, but now you've moved. Our Western world creates an illusion that we can go it alone. That when we move, it's just us. That we're not leaving these holes in other people's lives. And there's another image here. Not just someone that's left, but someone that is lost. A coin dropped between the seats, forgotten. For how long? We're not really sure. But what we do know is the coin didn't ask to be lost. The sheep may have walked away, but the coin didn't. But Jesus' response to both people, to both the person that left and the person that was dropped, forgotten, abused, victimized, is the same. Don't worry, I'm coming. And the word sinners, of course, makes sense as an identifier in the first century because you knew. You knew what that meant. You knew this person is on the outside while we are on the inside. We are safe. They are not. But it's okay because we have to protect ourselves. Who can blame the Pharisees? Who among us? What else could they do? The reason, then, that what Jesus does is so important is not just because it flips the concept of the word sinners on its head, but because finally someone has come that is stronger than that gravitational pull. Someone is capable of actually going out there to help. We know when we're sick, we need a doctor. Doctors exist because people get sick. I stand before you, I'm in my mid-twenties, I'm doing okay, physically. I'm not blind, I mean, I wear contacts and can't see very well, but I've still got function in my legs and my arms, I'm still young. But 
one day that's going to change. One day I'm going to need help. And as we look at this passage, I wonder if there's not some of us here that aren't very good at asking for help. We don't really know what it's like to say, I'm not strong enough. I actually might be too weak. (laughs) Whether that's a mental health crisis, whether you're suffering because you don't know why you feel this way, there are people that are stronger than you (laughs) that can help. And in these stories, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying it's not that these people were too bad. It's that who could have helped them? Who was strong enough? What Jesus does both in this story and in our lives is demonstrate not only that he's capable, but that this is the entire reason he's here. He's here because none of us are strong enough, are good enough. And so maybe the challenge for us today, church, is are we capable of seeing our own faces in these lost ones? Maybe some of us already do that. We already know I'm the lost one. But this is a wonderful, bright, smart, church, and probably many of us don't think of ourselves that way. We think, I'm the leader in this community. (laughs) Who am I to ask for help? And maybe some of us are more concerned with identifying who the lost ones are, making sure we don't fall down that slippery slope, that we forget There's something way stronger. This is the choice set before us. Fear. Fear of the sinner. Fear that we will fall. Or trust in the power of the living God to rescue all of us lost ones. There's a postscript on our little story There's a commonality in all three, and that's that they all end with a huge celebration. They all end with Jesus saying, come rejoice with me. Because what's on the other side of bringing in the lost ones might seem like it would be scary or hard. But what Jesus is saying is, there is a party happening, and you're missing out. When something that's lost is recovered, you can't help but celebrate. So this postscript, the end of the prodigal son, the Pharisees, hearing the question that they asked, hearing Jesus' response, and going, but what Jesus What if I get lost in the mix? What if their inclusion, their bringing in, means I get replaced? Unlike the world we live in, Highland, there's good news. 
The kingdom is not a zero-sum game. Someone else's recovery is not your loss, and Jesus will find you too. The recovery of a lost one is the celebration of heaven. And maybe it's time we ask ourselves, do we want to join in on that party? If you'll bow your heads with me, we'll pray for our benediction. God, I thank you for this dear group of people to my heart. I thank you for the chance and the honor to get to speak to them this morning. I pray for your guiding hand as we go out this week that our hearts can take what we've heard, what we've worshiped with, and live into that, Lord. It's in your name I pray, amen. The prayer team will be forward in just a moment, um, and they'll be ready to pray with you if you'd like, or get a cup of coffee with you sometime this week. But in the meantime, Highland, will you stand for our benediction? May you go this week, church, knowing Jesus' great power, and open your eyes to see the reward that is waiting for you in the here and now. Go in peace.